The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. On this Friday, here's what's ahead. There were lots of claims last night's debate about the state of the U.S. economy. We'll get a fact check and see who's doing the best and the worst right now. Plus, hot demand, hot prices, and hot stock prices for the home builders. Why one analyst thinks the scorching hot housing market is sustainable. And Intel's big slide, an Uber blow in California, and how the election could goose the muni market. That's all ahead, but let's start with the state of play this hour. Rahel Solomon has the latest on these markets for us. Rahel? <laughs> Hi, Kelly. Well, tough way to end the week with stocks hitting their session lows here in the last hour as doubts over imminent stimulus resolutions reemerge. We'll get to you with the right screen in a bit. So the Dow session high was up 72 points. Session low was 190. Intel is the biggest lagger. So some of the chip stocks are also getting caught up in the Intel fallout. Names like Micron and Lamb Research under pressure today. There are, however, here we go, a few bright spots in the chip space, including AMD and Xilinx. And finally, regional banks losing a bit of steam with the rest of the market here in the last few minutes, but still finishing the week on solid footing. And that's helped by rising interest rates. And on a month-to-date basis, the KRE, by the way, on track for its biggest gain since 2016. Kelly, we will see if these gains, they can hold on to those next week. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, it's been such an impressive move in those regional banks, Rahel. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon. Meantime, with just 11 days, 11 days left until the election now, those presidential candidates traded blows on jobs, the economy, and more in last night's final debate. Let's see if their comments are grounded in reality. Steve Leesman is here with more on that for us. Hi, Steve. Kelly, the sure grounded the debate that we have on this show all week long. From taxes to tariffs to jobs, the presidential candidates debated issues that they'll end up having a profound effect on the economy in years to come. Let's start right away with the back and forth on the controversial issue of a $15 minimum wage. What's going to happen and what's been proven to happen is when you do that, these small businesses fire many of their employees. Said- there is no evidence that when you raise the minimum wage, businesses go out of business. That is simply not true. OK, the Congressional Budget Office in 2019 finding boosting the minimum wage to $15 would result in 17 million people getting higher wages and 1.3 million workers becoming jobless. About an equal number would be pulled out of poverty. On the issue of tariffs, President Trump said, quote, China is paying. They are paying billions and billions of dollars. Well, most economists agree the burden of tariffs fall primarily on the importers. In this case, that's U.S. consumers and companies. But it doesn't appear that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden will be quick to eliminate these tariffs in any event. And on the issue of the trade deficit with China, former Vice President Joe Biden said President Trump has caused the deficit with China to go up not down. Well, it depends on when you look at it, but the trade deficit with China fell by roughly a very small $2 billion from 2016 to 2019. It did, however, hit an all-time high in 2018. One more point here, the president again repeating that he had the best African-American unemployment rate. While this was true, it needs some context. Take a look, African-American unemployment falling by 6.2 percentage points under President Obama. It dropped a further 2.5 percentage points under President Trump before the pandemic. 
To this point in the administration, it's 4.2 percentage points higher because of the impact of the pandemic. How much President Trump was responsible for the decline to a record low or responsible for the recent surge back into double digits and whether Joe Biden can do better? Kelly, that's among the things voters are going to decide in 11 days. But Steve, there's something very important that you hit on in, in laying all of this out, which is that in some ways it's the core of supporters for President Trump four years ago and to some extent still today that fared least well. I mean, if you look at what's happened with the farm economy and some of the manufacturing impact from the trade wars, um, those sectors have not benefited as much as the. And, and again, to your point, it's not the president's objective. It was the means. So there's been four years now for some of these supporters to say, I'm not sure this is working for me. Whereas if you look at the African-American, Hispanic unemployment rates, people who four years ago had very little support for this president, we've seen those polling numbers go up now. And, and because of what you're describing. So who knows if it's going to be enough, you know, to push him or, or Biden, you know, who, whomever it pushes over the finish line. But there's a really important shift there that you're describing. Yeah, Kelly, people don't necessarily vote their pocketbooks entirely, as you know. Uh, there are all kinds of other issues that are out there. Um, you know, in my talk with, pe with people on both sides, you know, uh, first of all, uh, some people say, yeah, President Trump may be X, Y, and Z, but they don't necessarily see uh, former Vice President Biden as any better at those things. That's, that's one thing. I mean, the coal economy is a good example. Uh, the coal resurgence never happened. A lot of coal miners lost their jobs as well over this period of time. So that's another issue where, you know, you can imagine, is West Virginia going to go for Biden? I doubt that. Uh, the farm economy has been badly hit. Uh, I doubt that you'll have uh, some of these farm states going for President, uh, former Vice President Biden either. Yeah, absolutely. No more. Certainly more goes into it. But in an election like this, where every vote at the margin is going to matter, uh, these are some factors that certainly will weigh, uh, weigh on that. Steve, thank you very, very much, Steve Leisman. President Trump, Pleasure. speaking of which, and the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, they were commenting just moments ago on stimulus. We saw it move the markets to session lows. We've got more details on it now. Let's bring in Elon Moy. Elon? Well, Kelly, the politics of another package are looking harder than ever. President Trump just speaking to reporters at the White House, accusing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of not wanting to send aid to Americans before the election. And the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin indicated that the two sides still have a lot of ground to cover. We've offered compromises. The Speaker on uh, a number of issues is still dug in. If she wants to compromise, there will be a deal. Uh, but we've made lots of progress and lots of areas, but there's still some significant differences that we're working I mean, what now, President Trump also reiterated the point that he made last night in the debate, which is that he doesn't want to bail out blue states. Now, we knew that state and local funding was one of the outstanding issues in this. Today, we're hearing both sides say that there is still a deal to be had if only the other side would just give in. And Kelly, I don't think that's going to happen in the next few days. Back over to you. Yeah, somehow deals like that never happen. Yeah, yeah, if the other side just gives in, we're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, if only, uh, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy in Washington. As I mentioned, stocks did hit session lows as those stimulus hopes are fading somewhat. But my next guests say this economic rebound, it will continue regardless of who gets elected. Joining me now, Michael Yoshikami is CEO of Destination Wealth Management and Bryce Doty is Senior Portfolio Manager at SIT Investment Associates. Michael, I'll start with you because uh, this comment of yours is striking. You say increasingly the market seems to be less and less concerned about the outcome of the presidential election. You sure about that? 
Uh, no, I'm not sure about anything, but I suspect uh, that probably what will happen is there'll be a stimulus deal. Whether we have one uh, before uh, or after an election, there's going to be a stimulus deal. You're starting to see Wall Street come out and talk about what's going to happen if there's a Biden presidency versus a Trump presidency. It all really depends what the legislative agenda is going to look like. What I'm referring to there is that I think there's going to be more money pumped into the system. I think it's going to be more than $1.5 trillion. Um, and so I think you're going to see a tremendous, tremendous amount of money uh, pumped into the um, uh, economy. And I, and I think that's going to be a positive on a net basis for stocks. Yeah. And Bryce, I know you also think that, as we mentioned, that this economic rebound will continue regardless of who gets elected. Uh, is it similar kind of reasoning like Michael was just saying? A little bit. I, I think that we will we will not get a stimulus deal before the election, though, because politicians, it's just too tempting for them to use it as a bludgeon against each other. But once the elections are over, I think they'll go back to caring about the people that are losing their jobs and, and the country as a whole, and we'll get a stimulus bill. And then uh, and, we do, and we don't need a lot. We need enough to get us over the hump till a vaccine gets widely distributed. And at which point the economy is going to rebound in 2021, probably as strong as it, as it ever has in our history, regardless of who gets elected. And so today, you know, investors need to start transitioning their portfolio in anticipation of that now. I know also, Bryce, that you, you like the stock market here. You like parts of the corporate bond market, um, like those that aren't really kind of in the indexes. Muni bonds, we'll talk about that later. Tips. Uh, Michael, let me ask you about where you would have investors positioned, because we often talk about technology. I know you're a fan of the sector, but you also say financials are, are a place people can stick with, right? Yeah, I, I have a slightly different uh, opinion. I don't think we're going to see quite as strong as a rebound as, as some are thinking. I think we're going to have a muted rebound. I still think in the end, uh, regardless of what we want to think about the coronavirus, it's going to be around and the economic impact is going to be around for a significant period of time not only here but on a global basis so for that reason i think even if you're going to be if you're going to be positioned in equities you want to make sure you have high cash flow oriented names dividends look really good right now when you consider how low tenure treasury rates are right now um, and i think you still of course want to have tech and i think financials are really um, at this point people are very concerned about net interest margins and i think financials have been really an unloved sector, as you, as you, I'm sure your viewers know. But I think that when you have the kind of dividend rates that they have, as well as the financial balance street, the balance sheet strength that they currently have, um, I think there's some opportunities in financials you should not ignore. Bryce, any specifics you'd leave us with? Yeah, yeah I, I think that at that pervasive pessimism explains why four out of five economic data numbers that have been coming out for the last two months have been underestimated. People just have this dark cloud over their head, and they don't realize that, that people are figuring it out. People are doing better than you expect. The services number that came out this morning, better than expected. You know, it's, it's just going to continue. It's not going to be fantastic, but it's going to continue to be better than people expect. There's always this, there's like this dark cloud over everyone's head. Everyone's like, you know, becoming in, institutionalized with this you know, COVID fatigue. But that's going to dissipate, and things will get better than expected. They may not be perfect, but they're going to be far better than people are thinking right now. All right, and I know you think that's why investors can stick with the stock market and some of those other areas that I mentioned. Bryce Doty, Michael Yoshikami, thank you both today. Have a great weekend. Thanks, and coming up here on The Exchange. 
We'll talk about one really hot sector of the market. It's the home builders. The ETF is up more than 73% in just six months. Is it too late to get into the sector? Our next guest says there's one stock that could rally 24% from here. He joins us next. Plus a swing and a miss for Intel again. What's next for this chip giant that just can't keep up? With the shares down 11%, we have all that and more ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Weekly mortgage relief numbers are out. They continue to get better, but there is more to the story. Diana Olick is here with those details for us. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, the numbers are improving, but we're definitely not out of the woods yet. The number of borrowers in government or private sector COVID-related forbearance plans fell slightly, down by just 11,000 this week compared with last week. Fannie and Freddie loans in forbearance dropped by 14,000, and bank or privately securitized loans fell by 2,000. But those were offset partially by an increase of 5,000 loans in FHA and VA bailouts. So total, as of October 20th, nearly 3 million borrowers remain in active COVID forbearance plans. That's about 5.6% of all active mortgages. And 80% of those still in bailouts have had their terms extended. Now, as for the picture for the homeowners, it continues to improve, but that is not the case for renters, as more of them are struggling to pay their rent. 10% of renters, in fact, surveyed by the U.S. Census, said they had no confidence, zero, that they could pay next month's rent. And a new report from the Philly Fed estimates that 1.34 million renter households will owe a collective $7 billion in rent by December of this year, which is around $5,400 per household. And this, of course, is all a result of pandemic-related job losses, which have hit renters much harder than homeowners, Kelly. And it's a good reminder that even as we're talking about how strong the housing market is, this segment is very different story and much weaker. And what happens in January when this eviction moratorium expires? Well, so the CDC put that moratorium in place, but they actually updated it just last week, saying that landlords could now start the legal eviction process, just not remove the tenants from their homes until January. But that means that come January, if these renters still haven't paid up, they could be kicked out almost immediately. And again, they're the ones who have been really hit hard by job losses. And while homeowners have gotten this bailout with their mortgages, they can tack it onto the end of their mortgage, the payments they've missed, renters get none of that, nothing. Right. They would probably need another act of Congress in order to delay that from happening on mass in January. Dan, appreciate it. Dan Olick for us. Let's talk about what's going on in the housing segment where sales of existing homes last month were up more than 20 percent annually to their highest level since 2006, the housing bubble. Now, if you combine the sales pace with the number of homes on the market at the end of the month, it was less than a three month supply, the lowest inventory level since at least 1982. 
So what's one way investors can play this trend? Check out shares of Pulte Group. The stock is down 13% from its record high last week. And one analyst at RBC Capital Markets is telling investors it's time to buy this dip. Joining me on the CNBC Newsline is Mike Dahl. He's an analyst who covers home builders there. Mike, it's good to have you. And I mean, with Pulte in particular, tell me why you think that this housing demand, just these blockbuster numbers that everyone keeps putting up, why you think that's sustainable? Uh, thanks, Kelly, for, for having me on. Uh, on Pulte, look, this is a, as you put it, down 13% from the recent highs. Uh, at the end of the day, this is one of the best-in-class uh, businesses and management teams. They've got a great position on land. We think they have the right balance of pushing pace and price to optimize margins and return on equity. And they're restarting their buyback program in the fourth quarter, uh, so we think this pullback is healthy. There was some froth out there alongside, as you've noted, these, this incredible stretch of growth. Um, but now with this pullback, we do see it as an attractive opportunity. Yeah, you know, it wasn't until this year, correct me if I'm wrong, that Pulte shares finally took out their housing bubble levels. Uh, that was before the pandemic, actually. They got back to those levels kind of late summer, early fall, hit a record high just a couple of months ago. So your price target is just, a, you know, 53 is a couple bucks above where we were just a few weeks ago, really. Um, so I'm, I'm curious a little bit about what was happening yesterday. The company reported a fourth quarter delivery uh, number that was a little bit shy of analyst expectations, and it took the whole sector down pretty sizably. What does that tell you? Sure, and, and I think coming into this earnings season, you've had a couple of things. First, you've had extremely elevated expectations. Second, you've had a little wiggle on the 10-year uh, higher, and that's made investors kind of a little on edge. Um, the company, I think, rightly tried to temper some of the more extreme uh, enthusiasm that's out there, certainly still speaking to very strong demand trends, strong margin trends, but recognizing and, and trying to communicate that there are supply constraints uh, from a production standpoint, um, and that's kind of what's limiting some of these numbers in the near term. So, you know, combination of high expectations, a little bit more tempered than people hope for, you get this pullback. Uh, again, that's where we think you could step in. Mike, how long in general do you think this building boom is going to last? That's a great question. I, I think the fundamentals are really in, in place, assuming the economic picture continues to improve. There's certainly some hope that we kind of hockey stick up out of this recovery um, in terms of housing leading the way. Um, but from our standpoint, you know, there were a lot of constraints pre-COVID around land, around labor, uh, really limiting the growth in any given year. Uh, those haven't disappeared post-COVID. If anything, things like permitting have become more difficult. So we subscribe to the idea that we're going to be in more of a stronger for longer, where we may not see this hockey stick-shaped um, recovery and growth, but we could return back to the kind of high single-digit to double-digit um, level of growth for an extended period of time, uh, which we view as, as fairly healthy. Oh, sure. That would be much healthier, certainly, than anything like uh, what we saw back in 05, 06. Uh, very different this time around, uh, but still encouraging that maybe it can last for, for quite some time. Mike, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Mike Dahls with RBC Capital Markets. Again, he has a $53 price target on Pulte. Coming up, it's a blow to Uber and Lyft in California as a judge rules against them on how to classify drivers. Will they get bailed out at the polls in less than two weeks? We will ask. 
And Bank of America out with the stocks they say could see a year-end rebound after tax-related selling. We've got those names coming up. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets. Dow's down 103 points right now, a little off the session lows, and the S&P has just turned back positive. The Nasdaq's down by nine. In terms of the sectors, communication services and materials are your leadership today. Energy and technology, those are lagging behind. And here are some of the movers. We're watching Boston Beer soaring despite a revenue miss. Earnings and guidance did come in above estimates, and you guessed it, strong seltzer growth. Strong and strong seltzer growth. You know what I mean. Anyway, one of the tailwinds. Shares are up 14.5%. Shake Shack is also moving higher on an initiation to outperform at Oppenheimer. They're saying Shake Shack's U.S. footprint could grow to three times its current size. The shares up a little less than 3%. And finally, take a look at Snap. This stock continuing its monster rally following earnings earlier this week. It's now up 53% in just the past week and another 8.5% today. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update now. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. We begin with the leaders of Israel and Sudan on speakerphone in the Oval Office a bit earlier today. President Trump announcing a deal to move towards normalization of relations between the two countries. Sudan is the third Arab state in a U.S. brokered deal with Israel, and Trump says there are more to come. As Europe faces a new wave of coronavirus cases and deaths, Denmark's prime minister announced today she will make face masks mandatory in all indoor public areas. Prime Minister Fredriksson added that she will ban the sale of alcohol after 10 p.m. and lower the limit of public gatherings to 10 people from 50. Handwritten speaking notes by Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler are on the auction block in Munich, Germany today, despite concerns from Jewish groups that the auction could encourage anti-Semitism or the items end up in the hands of neo-Nazis. The collection includes notes scrawled with recognizable phrases, including, quote, the Jewish problem, end quote, and work sacrifice, along with initialed pots from Hitler's personal tea service. You are up to date, Kel. That is the news update at this hour. I'll send it back to you. That seems like a really bad idea. Uh, Sue, thank you very yeah. much. We appreciate it, Sue Herrera. Let's talk about Bank of America seeing a key tax deadline at the end of this month for institutional investors that could present an opportunity to buy some of this year's worst performing stocks. Now, among them, our energy company, Philip 66, 66 its stock is down 55% so far this year. Ouch. 
The year high was just around 120 per share. We're down about 60 percent from that level. Also, Las Vegas Sands. The stock got a boost from its latest earnings report, but it's still down 27 percent for the year. The year high was $74. We're off about 32 percent from that price. And rounding out the list is GE. The stock trading around $7 right now. It's down 30 percent this year. Its high was 13 bucks. We're down 42 percent from that level. For more on Bank of America's call and the rationale behind it, you can head over to CNBC.com pro. Ahead, Intel's chip wreck. Good news from Amex, the Barbie boost and people flocking, yes, flocking to New York City. All that and more is ahead on today's edition of Rapid Fire. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with me are John Fort, Deirdre Bosa, and Michael Santoli. And first up, it's the biggest drag on markets today. Shares of Intel plummeting after reporting disappointing third quarter results, especially weakness in its data center business. And confirmation we won't see its next generation chips until 2022 at the earliest. Shares are down more than 10% today. They're down 20% on the year. John, you spoke with CEO Bob Swan earlier. He shed any light on the situation? Yeah, and Kelly, it's not as bad as it sounds in a lot of ways. I mean, we, we say the data center business is a problem, but really it's that uh, businesses enterprise, that business, and government, that was weak. What was really strong is the cloud business, but, you know, the margins, the profits are not as good on the cloud side when Amazon and Microsoft and Google are buying. And the PC business, still strong, but people are buying those bargain PCs. It's more for education versus for the road warriors. So it's that margin issue, that profit issue that really has investors disappointed. But what do you make of um, oh, what's this? You know, I'm talking about the analyst note today, John, that that says th this is bad news. It's going to keep getting worse. Stacy Rasgon of Bernstein. Uh -huh. I think he's like the number one chip analyst on the street. We've talked to him a bunch. But like this is not a guy who sounded reassured by all that. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, the analysts get some right. They get some wrong. I think the big overall picture and question is, can Intel pivot from this story that they used to have where we are this manufacturing juggernaut that never gets that wrong to all of a sudden they're talking about outsourcing seven nanometer and making that call in 2021. If they outsource it, can they maintain margins enough? Can they maintain market share enough and churn out chips and sort of remake their story? That's still possible. And the demand overall is there. We'll see how it emerges in the enterprise after the pandemic. And Mike, maybe we can kind of take a step back and, and again, look at the performance of Intel relative to NVIDIA, relative to AMD. And I understand that the latter stocks are trading at eye-watering multiples, yeah. but when you can put up eye-watering growth, I mean, Intel, is it in danger of being a value trap? Yeah, well, it has proven that uh, in the last couple of years anyway. I mean, the relative performance of Intel versus the rest of the semis has never been worse. Uh, went back 30 years and showed that uh, it is cheap. And right now, the market doesn't necessarily love cheapness, not just in semiconductors, but anywhere. Uh, but, you know, it's not exactly as if this is a broken business, even if Intel, as John says, kind of sidelined for this particular uh, cycle and certain products. So I do think that's going to be uh, the big question. I saw a fund manager make a comment recently that that basically Intel guessed right repeatedly for 40 years and kind of guessed wrong on this one kind of architecture issue. And that's the question of, of what do you pay right now for them to get that sorted out and, and start to ride the industry trends again? 
Yeah, it's it's well said, and it's one of the more fascinating ones to look at these competing businesses and see if these are short-term moves or or really big uh, shifts in, in what's uh, happening out there. Speaking of big shifts, let's talk about California Appeals Court ruling that Uber and Lyft must classify their drivers as employees, not independent contractors. Now, they're just upholding a lower court ruling, and this also comes less than two weeks before voters in the state will be asked whether or not to exempt ride-sharing companies from that new gig economy law. Both Uber and Lyft now have 30 days to comply while the appeals process wraps up. Deirdre, Uber in particular was just up like 7% earlier this week, I think pending what looks like a favorable outcome from the ballot box here, they're not selling off today. How much are they expecting uh, voters to bail them out here? Well, part of that pop earlier this week was also on Didi, the Chinese ride-sharing company's valuation. But yes, yeah, some of these regulatory issues, they're starting at least to reach the finish line to start to get cleared up. I don't know how encouraging that is, but we had the California AG on Squawk Alley this morning. He brought up a really good point. Prop 22, that's what we are all looking forward to in two weeks. That ballot initiative that Uber, Lyft, and a few other gig economy companies have spent more than $180 million on. Now it is the most expensive ballot initiative ever in California. They're trying to convince drivers, voters, to keep the current status, that is, drivers as independent contractors. The AG brought up a good point. What if they had spent all of that money on their drivers. So if that does not go in their favor, and I would say we, that is still far from certain what the outcome is going to be, uh, they may wish that they spent that adjusting their business model. So we don't know what they're going to do if they have to reclassify their drivers as employees, but we do know that that would cost the companies a lot of money and upend their entire business models. Yeah, no, I heard that interview. It was a good one. And, and you know, Carl asking him what happens if this doubles ride-sharing costs in California, for instance. John, the AG also suggested that, you know, if drivers want to stay on as independent contractors, they would have some choice in doing so. Um, do we know what the odds are, are or what the polls are saying about the likelihood of, of this passing for them right now? Well, last I saw, Prop 22 looks likely to pass, and that would be good for the gig economy companies. I mean, in a way, this whole court thing, it doesn't matter. It, it comes down to what the voters decide here. And I, I see where A.G. Becerra was coming from with the amount of money spent. But that little amount of money, and yeah, it's in the million, so it looks big, but it's nothing compared to the costs that these companies would have to take on if they're forced to classify these drivers as employees. It's just, it's no contest. It sinks their entire business model. They can afford to pay for this ballot initiative. They could not afford that business model change. One more comment on this, John, but if Uber and Lyft are exempted from this law, which was basically meant to target them, then doesn't it seem unfair that everybody else who isn't as deep pocketed or as well known or doesn't have the brand name, they, they still have to comply? I mean, doesn't the fact that voters are saying, well, we don't want this outcome suggest that maybe they, they don't want the outcome of the whole approach of the law? Well, not really, Kelly, because Uber and Lyft and those gig economy companies, they're about the only ones left targeted by these things. I mean, if you look at the list of all of the different job categories that were already exempt, really the law was targeting these specific kinds of companies. I think that really what this comes down to is there are certain worker protections and safety nets that need to be uh, brought in there just for the sake of hardworking people who are looking to make a living. I don't know if classification as employees really addresses that issue. Right, right. No, it's a huge one. Absolutely. There are other, lots of other uh, proposals out there as well. But that's a good point that there are a lot, the exemptions were already soaring.
Um, so anyway, shares of Uber and Lyft, as everybody saw, are marginally higher today, and we'll see what happens in 11 days' time. Shares of Mattel are much higher after a big earnings beat and a strong holiday shopping outlook. They're getting a big boost from Barbie sales. They were up 29% in the third quarter. It's the biggest jump since 2003. Mattel says parents are using these toys to keep kids occupied while stuck at home, and DA Davidson is bullish. The firm just upgraded Mattel to a buy, saying that growing demand sets it up for a strong 2021. Mike, the shares are up nearly 12% today. But, you know, is this just a one-time thing? Yeah, I understand everyone's stuck at home and playing with Barbies this year. But, I mean, is that a reason to kind of permanently re-rate the stock higher? I don't think about permanent re-rating, no. But this really does just round trip the stock back to where it was right before uh, kind of this crash. So it doesn't really build in many years of this kind of uh, of revenue. And I do think there's some confidence, especially in some of the analyst commentary, that at least coming through holiday season, this momentum should carry on. Inventories are lean. And you now have, uh, you know, families in this mode where it seems very obvious that $20 or $30 or $40 for a Barbie set is a small price to pay to keep the kids occupied, especially when you're probably newly focused on how much screen time maybe they're getting. So maybe there's a little bit of a rejuvenation of this style of play. The other thing I would, I would mention is games. They called out Pictionary and Uno because if you went to a store, a Target, and tried to find <laughs> games and puzzles, they were sold out for months for a while. Uh, Deirdre, those are two of my favorites from growing up. <laughs> um, Kelly, I brought a guest on. I have intergenerational proof right here that Barbie may be able to stand the test of time. Canadian Thanksgiving, I know a lot of people don't know what that is. It comes before American Thanksgiving, and it's already happened. My niece gave this to my two-year-old daughter. So this may, not, may be a hand-me-down. It's not Elton John Barbie, which I know hit the shelves this week. But the point is that it was passed down, and she's playing with this now. She may demand more Barbie things in the future. And by the way, Kelly, I know you've got boys. My son, too, when he was a little bit younger, he loved the Barbie cars. Uh, so, you know, for some reason, <laughs> Mattel is able to make these toys that withstand generations and the test of time. And, you know, I'm seeing it myself. Kelly, <laughs> I Kelly love it. Uh, yeah. two years from now, the yard sales are going to be amazing. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to wait till then. My anti-Barbie bias is showing. I just never was into it growing up. Uh, but Mattel's CEO will join Mad, Money, uh, Mad Money's Jim Cramer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We very much look forward to hearing him make his case for why this trend will last. Finally, shares of American Express are falling after reporting a 40% slump in profits from a year ago in its third quarter. Weak credit card usage, obviously, to blame. But while overall spending declined, the company did say that consumer retail spending improved in the quarter because of strong online transactions growth. Uh, for more, let's welcome in our own Kate Rooney. Because, Kate, you talked to the CFO this morning. And is that an encouraging spot for the economy? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the Amex quarter really was a travel story. Uh, everything outside of travel and entertainment was actually pretty good. Uh, Jeff Campbell mentioned it was flat. It really uh, was up about 1%, helped by things like retail and e-commerce. He did say, though, consumer travel needs to bounce back before Amex can get back to those pre-pandemic levels. And then he mentioned business travel, which was by far the weakest. But it's funny, I sort of thought of Amex as a business travel company. It only makes up 6% of the revenue or was before the pandemic. Uh, he also said that could take years to recover. They're not expecting business travel to really get to where it was before the pandemic. Uh, John Ford, what would you add to all that? Uh, I would say we need to get airport Barbie and we need to give her a black card. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, I...
Kate was there. You know, Kelly and Kate, I would argue, Kate said that maybe, that she thought that this was maybe a business travel card. I get that. But to me, Amex is still my mom and dad's credit card. I mean, you go to their website, and I did this morning, and they're still pushing the travel and dining perks. I mean, come on. You have to do what JP Morgan did with a Sapphire card and target a millennial audience that is looking for credit cards, perhaps for the first time, offer things like streaming perks or discounts or iPhone 12s. And I really just don't see a lot of that coming from Amex. It needs to update for a modern world for a millennial user. And perhaps not a card at all. Just get it Rudy on your phone. Rudy will give you the last word. It's uh, interesting, though. They mentioned that fee and that um, they haven't seen a ton of customer attrition. So people are still willing to pay that $550 fee in some cases to keep the card. And they have done some shifting of rewards. And they say that people are, are spending rewards in other areas like Amazon and using it through PayPal instead of their travel. But they did say there's so much pent-up demand uh, for people to get out after the pandemic. So that's what they're sort of betting on long term. I agree, though, Deirdre. They, they should right. s- switch to a little bit more of the gig economy rewards versus travel. <laughs> Shares down 3.5% today. Still down 18% on the year. Kate, thank you very much for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Kate Rooney. And finally, finally, so much for that urban flight argument. This this blows my mind. I need Mike Santoli to explain this to me. The new data shows that more people actually moved into the New York City metro area than out during the height of the pandemic. This comes from Orbital Insight. They use cell phone data to track migration in the 30 largest U.S. metro areas. The top five cities for relocation between March and September, meaning people were moving to them, Tampa, Florida, I know some people myself, Phoenix, Arizona, New York City, Miami, and Orlando. Mike. What gives? I can explain this in a few ways, one of which is that it was seemingly capturing metro areas. For New York, that is a vast area, and it's not just the city uh, necessarily. So I do wonder if that's really just capturing, you know, people did move out of New York City, a lot of them to buy houses in the immediate suburbs. They might not be considered to be uh, folks who have left the area. And the other thing is it counts things like college students returning home. Uh, or family members returning home because it was tracking cell phone data. It's not talking about apartment leases and mortgages. So I wonder if this is about exactly what we're measuring right here. But I'm happy to see any signs that, uh, you know, Escape from New York uh, is not uh, not running in, uh, in terms of the sequel uh, at this point just yet, because I'm not leaving just John yet. Ford. Well, what would you say? Well, unless you're retiring to Boca, there's only so far you can go. I mean, you can you can go from the city to the suburbs. Maybe if you can afford it, get yourself a lake house. If you move any farther than that, you're a doomsday prepper. And I think people are realizing we're not quite at that level yet. (laughs) Doomsday prepper. People on Twitter, please pile on to him. Thank you, everybody. Today, John Ford, Dear Cabosa and Michael Santoli for this edition of Rapid Fire. Still ahead, the abbreviated Big Ten football season kicks off tomorrow. And while that will boost schools' revenues, not everyone thinks it's the right move. We'll talk about what's at stake next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The Big Ten College Football Conference is finally returning this weekend. It starts tonight, but now it's coming at a time of rising COVID cases and rising controversy. Eric Chemi has more for us. Eric. Kelly, that's right. Big Ten football is back starting tonight as Illinois and Wisconsin face off with six more games tomorrow. To many observers, though, this timing is less than ideal as coronavirus cases are seeing an uptick, especially in the region where these schools play. The conference has schools from key election swing states, including Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. 
the super short season will feature fewer games, and because they're starting late, there's basically no chance of making up any games that will get canceled because of COVID. Massive stadiums that could hold 100,000 fans, they're going to sit empty except for a few family members in the stands. The Big Ten, they've been playing catch-up all year long. This summer, they decided to postpone the football season because of COVID. And at that time, the pandemic seemed to be more under control. So the other major conferences, they decided they would play anyway, allowing them to make millions of dollars while the Big Ten made nothing. Pressure and legal threats from players, schools, fans, even President Trump helped push the Big Ten to reverse course, deciding at the last minute to play football after all. Kelly, back to you. Their timing doesn't seem that great, whereas, you know, compared with something like the SEC. But I'm also curious, how do local officials feel about them kicking off now? You know, it, it's good, it's good thing you mentioned that because actually uh, almost all the mayors, 12 of the mayors of the cities where these colleges are located, they wrote an open letter to the conference and they said, hey, you got to consider us too. You need to think about uh, how this spreads among the community and then football games, you know, they cause increased activity and gatherings and alcohol consumption. So you got to be careful how these games are going to impact the spread of COVID among fans and students and all the people that live in these towns. So, so they are very concerned. They don't want fanless games to still turn into a problem because we know that people are hanging out together even if they're not on site at the game. No, that's a good point. I know even in the NFL, right, there's still this back and forth between local officials and teams over, I think it's the, the Saints who are now saying they've gotten permission to have 3,000 people in the stadium, uh, but they're, they're pushing for more, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at these pro teams, they're trying to make as much money as possible. So the more fans they can have, the more money they can try to make. So a pro team, look, they're a business. There's only one reason for them to exist. It's to make money. A college, a university, they have many, many factors to consider. Like all the students that don't play football, they're technically nonprofits. They're supposed to be these service organizations, these educational organizations. So they're in a much more difficult situation to figure out what is the purpose? Why are we playing football? Yeah, we want to make money. Is this really just about money? Right now, that's what it seems like. Yeah, and maybe just that feeling like it's uh, normal, even if not. But as you said, the timing uh, still its unfortunate for them. Eric, appreciate it. Thank you, Eric Chemi. Yep. Coming up, there's just 10 days until the presidential election. And while investors have been taking their best guesses about the victor, one sector of the bond market may benefit regardless of who wins. We have that next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Just 11 days stand between now and the election, and investors are gaming out every outcome for different financial assets, including municipal bonds. My next guest says that whether President Trump or Democratic nominee Joe Biden win, the muni market will benefit. Here to break down the impact the election will have, Catherine Steenstra is head of municipal bond investments at Columbia Threadneedle. Catherine, it's good to have you. And first of all, I mean, there's a lot of headlines about the dire situation that a lot of state and local governments and budgets are in. How is that impacting the muni market today? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, certainly, um, there's you know we're waiting for the stimulus uh, to come out here to potentially help the state and local economies. Um, waiting for this next round, uh, and of course uh, we see that uh, Speaker Pelosi and, and, and Secretary Mnuchin are getting closer. However, there are certainly differences that remain. 
One of those, of course, is the aid for state and local economies that would uh, certainly help. It looks like less likely before the election, uh, perhaps after there could be a lame duck session, but uh, we view that most likely in the first quarter, once a new Congress is in place, that we're going to see another stimulus package for these municipalities. It, it sounds like, yeah, and for municipal bonds, it sounds like that that relief round is really, really important. It's obviously been in the Democratic bill for a while, uh, not so much on the Republican side. What makes you confident that either way it, that relief will be included? Well, you know, we, we feel that uh, certainly under a Democratic uh, administration, there's going to be a larger federal uh, spending plan and a federal uh, fiscal uh, stimulus plan for state and governments, state and local governments that will improve, of course, the muni credit uh, fundamentals, which would be uh, certainly helpful. This would minimize layoffs, uh, furloughs, in addition to cuts to many essential service and uh, social safety net programs at a time when really the demand for services and programs are the greatest. You know, under a, a Republican uh, administration, certainly less aid, uh, if any, uh, would result ultimately, though, in uh, states having to balance their budgets, which we know they have to do. The austerity measures will take place where they will cut spending and increase taxes. Mm-hmm. And that will be necessary. And in which case, yep. if higher taxes are coming then for sure you can see why people would be attracted to muni bonds. I know there are some parts kind of tactically of the market that you would recommend. Transports are one of them, tolls, um, even some airports. Why? Well, you know, surprisingly, airports uh, is an area where there has been more bipartisan support. Uh, various Democratic and Republican proposals have included, you know, additional aid for airports. In addition to the $10 billion that they already received from the CARES Act, we're seeing increased in travel right now, so that's an area that we certainly like. Tolls is also another area where we've seen a pickup in driving, uh, in this working from home, less mass transit. It's an also an area where we would expect additional aid to help support that sector as well. And so uh, certainly seeing uh, positive uh, development in, in those sectors. Yeah. So again, I think your bottom line, which might be surprising to a lot of people, is despite all the budget headlines that we're seeing, you think the sector should hold up relatively well, especially in those areas. You are a little bearish on charter schools, senior living communities, anywhere else? Uh, Particularly, I guess the high yield sector is one area that we are concerned about, just given where we're at in this cycle. Um, Certainly charter schools and also senior living sector has been hit particularly hard in this COVID environment. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the rate of, uh, of uh, incoming um, components then are just, it's, it's lower. And obviously, uh, just given the nature of the age of, of the, the uh, yeah. people that reside in these, it's, it's been more of a, uh, an area that we want to be concerned with. For sure. Catherine, thanks so much for all of your recommendations and advice. Catherine Steenstra of Columbia Threadneedle. That does it for us on The Exchange today, but don't go anywhere. Coming up next hour, we check in with Junior's restaurant owner, Alan Rosen, who's back to update us on where his PPP money went, his employee count, and his reopening expectations. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.